Philosophers. Philosophers. So, David, there's a concept that gets brought up a lot, especially in our criminal justice system, but also in everyday life. When anyone does something that may be right or wrong, we always seem to want to have this objective conversation around what their intentions were. Mm -hmm. After all, I mean, you know, can you really blame someone for doing something and it turning out wrong if they had good intentions? Yes. (laughs) And uh, to quote Jurassic Park, some of the best, some of the worst things done are done with the best intentions. That's a slant quote. I don't know if that's exactly right, but still. Um, so let's, let's just jump right on into that topic. Uh, do intentions matter or is there an incident where they do matter or or what? You know, I think we should do our due diligence and go to the Lexico, which is a stupid name. I still, I still hold Oxford. Speaking of which I've received some, uh, listener feedback about our use of the Oxford. Oh, which, uh, he, he uh, our, our our dear listener holds strong objections to using the Oxford. Oh, <laughs> uh, although I don't recall him providing a suitable replacement. Um, but uh, but that was interesting. So we might need to uh, to look into changing our our source of, of public definitions. And I sort of saw his objection because they 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 do tend to use a lot of subjective language in their definitions. Yes, they do. So there there are better places to go, and also places. Uh, that have better explanations of etymology if we wanted to understand them more. Sure. All right. So, <laughs> this might be a good example, actually, because mm-hmm. when I look at the definition of intentions, uh, the definition... Okay, there's actually an interesting definition I didn't understand, uh, that I didn't know existed. The first definition uh, is a mass noun for a thing intended. So, Neat. Thank you. That well, was helpful. And yeah, I mean that that's correct. That is correct. And yes. and intention is a thing which is intended. Yes. Um the second definition is a medical one, the healing process of a wound. Didn't know that was okay. In, that, what that meant. And there's a logic definition. Uh, conceptions form around formed by directing the mind towards an object. So that's a thing. Neat. So uh So I propose for an alternate dictionary that we take a look at Wiktionary. Um, for the record, uh, the definition of intended, since we're going to go ahead and go down to that level while we're in Lexico is, uh, planned or meant. Uh, the informal is the, uh, oh, okay. mind. That's like the colloquial term. Mm -hmm. If you, two people are intended, that means they are, uh, engaged essentially, but that's a different thing. So what'd you say? Wiktionary? Mm-hmm. W-I-K-tionary? Yes, there we go. Wiktionary. Intention. Okay. Oh, this actually is a lot better in my opinion. Um, the noun, uh, the first definition is the goal or purpose behind a specific action or set of actions. So that actually I think is a lot more what we're actually talking about. Um, and then there's a bunch of obsolete definitions about stretching or bending things, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's work with that definition. I like that definition a lot better. The goal or purpose behind a specific action or set of actions. So, let's 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 call up, for example, um, let's call up a couple of examples, maybe, in which people often will call into question intentions directly. Is that a fair place to start, do you think? Sure. Okay. Um... In most forms of criminal justice, for example, intentions are often considered. Uh, there's a whole class of crimes in which you have to have intended to do it in order for it to, in fact, be a crime. Um, murder, for instance. Mm, yes, most of the time. I, I do think there are there, there is a uh, degree of murder which is accidental, but the more serious one is murder with intention to murder, so... Um, another one that is called into question is well, it's called into question a lot of times when something goes wrong, um, and people ask, you know, did you mean for it to do that? Um, but then again, that's kind of a the more generalized form of whether or not something is a crime. 
Um, so that's a good example I can I have on the top of my head. Do you have any other example places in which intentions might be called in to question? They get called in debates a lot too. Yes, yeah, they they do get called up in in debates all the time about. Um, well, often the problem in a debate is not that intentions are um, called, or not that intentions weigh on um, some sort of decision that everybody's trying to reach, but intentions are assumed or asserted about the other party. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it ends up, you know, in the in the eyes of the the audience, the the uh, usually the intention behind calling into question the opposition's intentions <laughs> is is so that the audience might see the opposition as um as not credible or um as uh, as being bad intentioned and therefore um the the audience should hesitate to agree with anything they have to say because they might be falling into some sort of trap. Right. Right. <clears throat> so So we have criminal criminal crimin, criminally uh examples of intentions or criminal intentions. Sure. And then we have, could we consider this maybe bad faith intentions? Is that a way we could categorize this? Or is it always bad faith? I guess it's bad faith, yeah. So, well, yeah, because you normally don't call forth good faith intentions. But it's possible. Okay, and... and, uh... Okay, so those are the two examples I guess we can work from for now. Um, I also want to... I, I think we, one thing we need to highlight that might be important, or it may not be, but we won't know until we discuss it, maybe. Intentions are a human quality. Or are they not? Or do we only ever treat them as being a human quality? Like, do we ever question the intentions of anything? Do, do we ever consider anything besides humans to have intentions? Yes. Like, give me an example. Dogs. Okay. But it, can we do that, I suppose? Or like, what is the what quality is it that you have to have in order to hold intentions? This may be a rabbit hole. It, it, this is a rabbit hole. Okay. Um, but I, I will say that I think, I think generally the things – well, because the – the reason why it's a rabbit hole is because we use uh, terms of intention metaphorically a lot. Like, uh, like we might talk about how, um, like we're talking about something abstract like uh, natural selection, and then we'll talk about how we'll, we'll we'll like personify genes as though they have intentions, even though obviously they don't. Right, but even by using the term personify, it's taking a well, and humans not necessarily always being when you mean when you say personify, but a lot of times people mean you are, you're applying a human quality yeah, well, it, to something that it doesn't deserve it. So are we personifying other things when we say they have intentions or can they have legitimate intentions? Do you think? No, I think that, I think, well, I think that for instance, a dog has intentions of its own. It, it means to do certain things. Okay. Well, that's, Let's not go down that rabbit hole then. I just thought maybe there would be an interesting attribute about intentions. Well, we well yeah, what I was going to say is in general, when we ascribe intention to a thing, we assume that it is conscious. Okay. Well, let's not go off into a discussion about consciousness. That's our ongoing after show discussion anyway. <laughs> yes. Um, so, all right, let's talk about criminal intent. So there are some crimes, for example, that if you commit them, Without intending to, it's actually not a crime, and you can't be held responsible for them, at least under U.S. I I guess I should say most law systems derived from English common law. Right. And maybe even further back than that, but I can say with a higher degree of confidence that most English common law or derivatives of such have intentions built into their system of law. So, for example, uh, one that gets discussed a lot today is interference or election interference or collusion or fraud of any kind if you commit fraud you have 
for, in order for you to be convicted, you have to have intentionally committed fraud. Or I think the way it's normally phrased legally is knowingly provided false information. Right. But that's, if you're knowing to do it and you do it anyway, by it, knowing to do intention. it, you yep. have intended to do yes. it. And so, um, I think uh, the reason for this is because most people do not want to be held responsible for things they don't intend to do. Like they don't want, especially in the negative. Like, like if I'm if I'm say supposed to provide my address to some government agency for something, um, if I misspell my address by mistake and send it in, like I'm not deliberately trying to fool the government about something. You know, I'm not I'm not being fraudulent per se. That I'm trying to I'm trying to to deceive anyone to get something that i'm not supposed to it was just a mistake right and people generally don't like being held responsible for mistakes because they feel as though they made no choice it, it wasn't a choice provided to them for them to make the mistake i feel like that's the sentiment anyway in general you know another good example that's more, more I, I think it i think normally it's it's sort of like an you know an empathetic thing like everyone knows that well well hence the, the common saying, people make mistakes. Yes. Yep. Um, you, as an individual, do not want to be held responsible when you make a mistake, so you generally don't want to hold other people responsible for when they make a mistake. Well, indeed, it's, you know, it's sort of intuitive. You know, when, when, we, when we watch someone do something and we can tell that they didn't do it, you know, someone is, uh, you know, skateboarding down a hill and they lose control and fall off and hurt themselves... You know, we we see that as a mistake, and we don't we don't go up and ask them why'd you jump off that thing and break your arm? Like they didn't mean to, or you don't <laughs> ask them that seriously. You might sarcastically ask them that question. Yes, but, but we yeah. don't. We we aren't genuinely curious why they would jump off and hurt themselves. We know that they didn't mean to do it, and we might you know feel pity for them or or whatever. Right. So, um, however, there's a that that's might be where the sentiment comes from. Um, However, there's a weird quirk uh, or an assumption that's being made when you codify it legally, and that is that you can know the intentions of another person. So, do you believe that you can know another person's intentions? Is it is it possible in any way, shape, or form for you to know the intentions of another person? Depends on how loosely you're going to define way, shape, and form. I'm just saying I can have I think that I can have reason to believe an intention. I you know obviously I'm not a mind reader, right? So I can't I can't you know say for certain what what somebody's intentions are, but I think I think that I think that there can in principle exist evidence for an intention. Okay, even if it's difficult to acquire. So Okay. So, I guess I'm trying to draw a hard line here, which may be difficult to draw. I will assert that it is impossible to know another person's intentions, period. Even if they tell you, this is my intention, you still have to take it on faith that they're being honest. You have to make, you have to, because of the nature of intentions, any way an intention can be communicated by a person is also affected by an intention. They have to intend to communicate it. Yes. So you spiral out into an infinite loop of, all right, it, 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 the conundrum, it's like the uh, oh, the Princess Bride conundrum. Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah. Uh, where there's two cups of poison that one set out, and he's like, ah, you want me to drink this one because you know that I'm going to do whatever the opposite is say. Because like he, he's intent, you know, assuming yeah. the intention of the other. He's like, ah, but but maybe you in, are assuming that intention that I would know that. And so I flip it, and it's an infinite loop of, you actually can't know. Is essentially the answer is you can't actually know the intention of the person. It, it's impossible. That's principally what I believe is that you cannot know. However, we pragmatically make assumptions all the time about intentions, um, because we can't be like a computer and sit there in an infinite loop dialing up to the internet the whole time while we're you know <laughs> stuck in a dial-up loop while we're trying to live, breathe, and eat. So, um. So principally, I, says, I suppose we can say intentions are unknowable. I, 
Actually, I don't know if I would accept that either, but I would say that for all practical purposes, they're unknowable. I think that um, in principle, intentions are codified physically in the form of your brain patterns. True. So theoretically, a technology could be developed which could prove intentions or could measure intentions. Right. And at that point, we can just thought police people. But until then... um, <laughs> um, now, now, whether we should employ such technology is a completely different philosophical question. But I would say that it's not in principle impossible to find out or measure intentions. But we don't have this technology now, so for all intents and purposes, right now we can't know. I'll add the caveat: you know, excluding mind reading technology, you cannot know intentions. So for now, at least in the current in the, in the current day, in principle. Well, the pragmatic principle. <laughs> but pragmatically, um, like all justice systems, they operate off of pragmatism. Most of the, you know, they rely Normally. on it. Yeah. Um, we have the the concept of reasonable doubt that allows us to fudge any fuzzy number of like, oh, I'm 90% sure. Uh, that's a good enough. <laughs> like, you know, we're working that up to 100 because we have to make a decision. So we, uh, pragmatically, we have the concept of you know reasonable doubt for uh, or beyond a reasonable doubt i should say of intentions and so you can prove in court for example the an intention albeit difficult but it is a thing so that being known um the question i would then go to is okay so even though we can prove intentions how does that matter like for example uh I would like to, to dig down on our example of the criminal justice system and go to the next level. Okay. Um, let's say there is a crime in which damages are incurred. Right. So, for example, it's a monetary damage that, that you can calculate. So it's hard. Um, yeah, it's a hard reality thing. For example, I smash my car into your car and incur damages to your vehicle that... You can get quotes for and say this is how much it will cost to restore it to the way it was before the accident happened within a very small margin of error. Sure. Um, Now, in most criminal justice systems, intent here is irrelevant for the cost of uh, restitution. For for restitution's sake, intentions are irrelevant a lot of the time. Actually, I can't. Nothing jumps to mind immediately of a crime for which a restitution is assigned in which the intention matters. For the restitution itself. Now don't be wrong. The feels are there. Where some people will assign a slightly higher restitutionary amount. Than what is actually probably necessary. Based on the intentions of the individual. But that's a whole different discussion. On on a criminal justice system in general. But we we actually don't factor in intentions. When it comes to crimes in which there is a. Easily measurable. Amount in which that needs to be. uh, Satisfied. So, um, So in that case. I can cite as an example of where intentions are irrelevant to the restitution. So I, I, I would like to call this into question yes, already. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Um, so I, I agree that that is the way that we do things. Um, but I'm going to call into question whether we should always, um, always do this. So for ins- now, okay. I'm going to provide an extreme example, a, a super unrealistic one. Yeah. Um, so, and we, we, I think we have entertained this before when discussing free will. Okay. Um, suppose that you had been, um, suppose that you had surgically implanted against your will a mind control device uh, by, uh, by some entity, and then they caused you uh to slam the accelerator and collide with my vehicle um should you still be held responsible for the damages okay i'm gonna call foul on this one because to whom this is now a question about who is assigned the responsibility which has nothing to do with the intentions because say for example even in this example you were able to know now that I did it of no fault of my own. So the responsibility shifts from me to the person who implanted the thing and caused me to do it. Well, but the, 
Hmm. So, but hear me out, hear me out. Let me, let me finish the example. Okay. So let me superimpose the responsibility in, in account with this. So in the accident example, take me out of it. Put in responsible party. Does the intentions of the responsible party matter? Now, this allows for whether it was me under my own influence or if I was controlled by someone else to do it. So the you have to assign responsibility first, but whoever you ended up landing on as being the responsible agent, then you apply that the intention question is then implied after you find the responsible party. I would, I, I, that's how I would see it. Is there a problem in, do you need, is there a reason okay, why you need to assume it here then? Cause, yeah. cause yeah, cause we're, cause okay. Cause if they made you slam the accelerator and collide with, with my vehicle, then they did intend for it to happen. So let's say that they didn't intend for it to happen. The mind control device malfunctioned and caused you to run into my vehicle. Who's responsible? Um, you can't be responsible. So I guess it would still fall on the th- those who implanted it. And so now, do we still make them pay for the damages? For their mind control device malfunctioning and causing you to damage my property? Yes. Okay. And I think I, think I can... I think I'm on board with that. Right. Because the thing is, once you actually, like, there's a, there's a assume step. Like, in my original example, it was the responsible party was explicitly stated as being responsible. So, in, in the counter example, given the responsible party actually would have needed to be determined first. So, and that's how most restitution cases actually go. You begin with, okay, the damage was incurred. Who done Here's it. your victim, and now you need to find out who's responsible. And then once the needle finally lands on somebody who's responsible, then the question of intent could be posed. And my assertion was, in a majority of restitution cases, it is ignored because it's irrelevant. Because it doesn't matter if you meant for this to happen or not. I still, the victim is still out monetary damages, and someone needs to restore it. So in that case. You know, even if it was the mind control chip people and whether or not the mind control chip people had a malfunction or not is irrelevant. At that point, it's you you still set in motion a chain of events directly that re- resulted in this. That's a whole pragmatic thing in and of itself. But we we all kind of have gotten together and decided you're responsible. So now when it comes time to assign, you know, a debt to you to or assign the debt to you to restore this part of the person's vehicle, your vehicle. Now that's been done. Does that monetary value, is it affected in any way by the intentions of the individual, whether they meant it to or not? Does the monetary value, is it affected by intentions at all? I don't think so. No. And and that's what I'm trying to say. And in in the case of uh, restitutive justice. Sure. Sure. Um, it's irrelevant. Now, that's only one prong of a justice system and of our justice system here in the United States. There are other facts, for example, crimes in which we cannot determine a monetary cost, for example, easily. So let's jump to our favorite crime to always talk about murder. Um, in murder, when you have murdered somebody, at that point, restitution is kind of out of the question. It's still a factor, don't get me wrong, but it's going to be a fuzzy number regardless. Because what's the value and of normally life? that is not really being called into question in the criminal court. Exactly. It's that, for someone else to claim, hey, I have incurred damages because you killed this person. Right. So that's handled separately. So in that secondary court where damages are being calculated, intentions are irrelevant. But in the criminal court, when we are trying to decide, did this person do something wrong? So it's almost it is it is a moral question always in a criminal court. Did you do something maybe yeah, I, I about that. maybe i jumped the shark on that one too because it isn't so much a moral question it is an objective question of did you do something that was written you should not do for example did you violate a statute right right so the statute was written do not commit murder person is called into question as having committed murder the real job of a criminal court is to decide did you do this or not so even in a criminal court, I would argue that intentions, unless codified, don't matter. So for example, 
unless you're being tried for a crime in which we explicitly state the intentions as mattering, they don't matter. Right? Okay. What I'm trying to build as a case is we intentions by default don't matter until we invoke them as mattering. I I mean I think that's sort of a tautology. Maybe. I'm they, trying to, they don't matter until they do. Well, fair enough. In, well, okay, I'm trying to cite this for maybe. In, I'm trying to look observe a trend. Anyway, so it is observed that it is tautological. Perhaps, or at least it's implied tautologically. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay, which is wrong. Tautologies are wrong, right? I don't know that tautologies are wrong or fallacious. They're meaningless. Okay. So what I'm saying, though, is there isn't a standard or reason. or uh, There has to be a standard or reason then behind it for it not to be a tautology. Yes. Okay. So I'm trying to ascertain why we care and when like when we care first and then looking at when we care and why it's important. So, okay. Uh, we care in the case of a criminal court um, because pragmatically, because really, really the purpose of criminal justice is to try to alter behaviors so that we get desired outcomes in our society. Right. So the question that we're really asking is, will punishing this person actually do anything? Well, I think that's correct, but I also think that's kind of coming off the back of another assumption, and is that is, is there anything we can do? Is there a behavior that needs to be altered? And for example, the answer to whether intentions matter is the same answer. So for example, intentions essentially are the the part of behavior that matters here. Because intentions are a behavior. You know, not all behaviors are intentions, but all intentions are behaviors. I would form that relationship. So whenever we're calling into question in you know, criminal court, it's, okay, did this person exhibit behavior we would like to have modified in some way? Or reformed in some way. And that's when intentions are called into question. Well, right. Or, or well, and did, you know, can we, hmm. can you, can you say that again? What did you just say? We, we begin looking at reformative justice because I'm going to go ahead and separate it because there is, you know, the isolatory justice, but that's not really what we're talking about. Right now, I'm trying to narrow it to, you know, the uh, reformative justice systems. We're looking to see if reformation is needed. And if the answer is yes, it will always be yes when intentions... The the yes will... The, the question of whether or not reformative justice needs to be considered, not always instituted, but considered, it's only ever when intentions matter. Like, if we have decided that the intentions do not matter for this crime, reformative justice is never invoked. Right. The example given me wrecking into your car, no one gives a shit, pardon my language, but for the intentions, because it doesn't matter. You Because whether you meant to or not, you damaged my property. Right. So you owe me to fix it. Right. And so that's separate. So that's dealt with. But there's a different crime, reckless driving, that might be called in as well. Right. But that has nothing to do with the damage you've incurred from being reckless. It is the fact that we believe you are intending or you have bad intentions or behaviors that we want rectified. And so in that case, we are going to try to go down the route of reformative justice. Now, whether or not we have decided that you need reforming or not has yet to be decided. So it doesn't matter if the answer is yes or no, reformative justice needs to be applied. We will only ever consider the question, though, when we call intentions into question. That's what I'm trying to say is in reformative justice and in whether or not intentions matter are called in at the same time. Yes. And that, that's what I'm trying to get to. I'm not assuming and intentions also, at all. I think also preventative justice. Like, did, like when we're trying to use punishments as some sort of deterrence for something um if we like it no amount of punishing somebody who made a mistake is going to make people have fewer mistakes i would assert mm, i actually would call that into question okay because there is the there is a meta behavior around 
caution. Yes. Okay. I I, I thought that that's where you were going to go with it. Yeah. I, I think I think I would agree that um that it would make people more cautious about it, it really depends on the nature of the mistake though like because at some point you have really taken all the measures of caution that you could and you still screw up right and in that case punishment wouldn't do anything but most of the time i would say that there are very few instances in which after all members all measures of caution you still accidentally committed a crime i think but then again there is there's still that small number but in those cases even in those cases, you do still consider intentions. And because if you didn't intend to do it, you know, it, well, actually, no, in this case, it doesn't matter because we don't really care if you intended it or not. It's like, well, it happened. We want to prevent the instance from happening again. Can we encourage a meta behavior of cautiousness that we can then try to reduce the number of crimes? So we know you didn't intend to do it, but we're still going to apply a punishment for not your sake, but, but that's the whole point of uh, preventative or what's it called? The deterrence policies and justice is that matter if you intended to do it, it's not about you at this point. We're going to do something to you because of what we're trying to do to other people. You are simply being used as a vessel at this time to try for, for us to try to communicate a message or in change of behavior for others, which has always been my strong stance. That, that's kind of why I have a strong stance against preventative justice or Oh, what's it called? Uh, the the term again? Uh, deterrence. Yeah, deterrence styles of justice is you aren't doing anything to the people you're trying to deter. You're taking advantage of a person for the sake of trying to commit a message to someone else in a stronger way. Which, it, to me, sounds like you're punishing one person for the sake of other people. It, it it gets into a weird place where these other people may not have committed a crime yet. So you, you can't really say that you're punishing someone else. It, it's essentially saying, I'm going to punish you for what other people would do if i didn't that's kind of in a nutshell deterrence i'm doing something to you for what other people would do if i didn't right well i think i think it's more like i'm going to punish you for a thing that you did and as a secondary purpose others are to find out about this and be deterred from doing the same thing. Right. But the thing that, okay, you're correct. That is what's happening. The first thing that's being done is the reformative justice. Right. But once the reformative justice is complete, you can have a secondary reason for wanting it to be acted as a form of deterrence. But if for the reason you're wanting it to be a form of deterrence, you crank up or down or adjust the punishment in any way for the sake of deterrence, that is wrong. Like, if the punishment would be different because you're trying to deter somebody, it is wrong. For example, I could bring a crime against you for a dollar. And the whole point is I'm trying to, like, uh, celebrities have done this for copyright's sake. You know, Taylor Swift, I think, uh, she sued somebody for a dollar. Not because she really wanted the damages, because there aren't any. They're trying to communicate to other people that do this that you could be held up in court for it. And the reason they brought the monetary punishment down is to make the court more likely to punish somebody because they don't see the punishment as big of a deal. It's like, it's just a dollar. I'm going to punish you for it. It's just a dollar. But what they don't realize is they might be, they're trying to encourage someone to make a decision for precedent's sake by lightening the load. That I think is wrong because you're trying to form precedence for deterrence sake. Maybe in the future, now that it's kind of has precedence built behind it, you could crank it up. You could crank up the damages. Or I'm suing or the Covington kid example, which is where he sued the Washington Post for $250 million for some reason. Okay. That is clearly sending a message of you better not do this because you could be next, you know, and you're trying to levy a punishment against one entity that not for the sake of punishing that entity or, or you know, uh, achieving restitution for the damaged party it's not the point anymore and when the point becomes off of that and changes what you're trying like what punishment you're trying to levy to, to deal out that is wrong at that point because now someone is either having to pay more than they should or they're not paying as much as they should or even being brought up on a crime that they shouldn't be tried for all you know, all of those things are being done 
for a secondary purpose that doesn't involve the individual either that doesn't involve the person being punished at all you know and so at that point it's like i feel like uh we're getting kind of out of the scope of the intentions part of it here but you're you're this time we're actually kind of looking at the intentions of the person bringing forth the suit but in the system of justice you're not actually looking at the intentions of what the person did like at this point it's like did they mean to do it or not mean to do it i don't really care i'm not really caring about them at all so we don't care about their intentions we're actually trying to look at and assume the intentions of others and see okay well most people would intend to do it but if i can punish this person maybe i can change their intentions so it's still a part of it it's just not on the party where we were discussing in the other examples which is the guilty party well i think i think the place in that case where we are considering the intentions of the guilty party is that the that behavior that is trying to be deterred is um or that, that people are that we're trying to deter people from is intending to do whatever the thing is like we haven't stated a specific thing so sure but like infringe copyright for example right if we can just leave it at that and not go into copyright itself i mean maybe you know so let's let's take for example the person who infringes the copyright to distribute copies of cds for example they bought the song they ripped a bunch of copies and sold it the person who created the cd the original says uh, that's wrong. They're infringing my right to decide how this is distributed. So then they intended to do it because there's really no way that you can accidentally commit copyright fraud. Maybe. Right. I'm not, maybe this is a bad example yes. because it, it, the intention is assumed. Let, let's go back to our driving example. I think that works fine because th that is a case in which it, it could be intention. You could have intended to do it or not. So, I guess the question would be is, do people who use uh, deterrence, do they factor in the intention of the person? Like, okay, we're only going to levy a punishment as a method of deterrence if you intended to do it or not. And I would say that it doesn't matter. They're, they don't care whether you intended to do it or not. It happened. And they're trying to deter whether or not it happened. So they don't care about your intentions. The fact is it happened and we don't want it to happen. So we're going to try to deter it and affect the behavior of others. Right in the form of maybe making them more cautious. So in that case, even the intentions of the individual in the general case, I, sh I say really doesn't matter. There's always, like I said, the human feels part of it where, but that's more retributive where, and that's where I think intentions are really called into question. Most of the time is retributive justice, retributive justice and, uh, reformative. reformative justice are the two times we really look at intentions, but, as far as, uh, and and I guess you could also make, let's go ahead and round out the five, because there are the five theories, you know, so in rest, restitution, irrelevant, um, deterrence, irrelevant, as far as the part of the guilty party, I would say isolatory justice, or just trying to keep the person as society, it matters there, because usually you isolate them because their behavior is repetitive, and it's used as a way by which you can facilitate reformative justice because usually it's a lot easier to try to reform somebody once they're remanded and they can't go anywhere and you can try to force it on them but um i don't know if you want to go into that one like whether or not we're going to isolate you i think does matter because if you didn't mean to do it as an accident well us taking you out of the population probably won't actually reduce the risk of it happening again right so what's the point i get well it, yeah and then then it starts to come into like Lots of other variables go into that because, you know, maybe you have some sort of problem where you, you know, let's say, well, okay, we, we wouldn't, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a weird example. Okay. Because it's what comes to mind. We I don't think I, that we would actually do this, but I think we can maybe draw analogies if we had to um, say that somebody is clumsy. Okay. Yes. And because they are clumsy, they can't help but when they're out in public, destroy other people's property. <laughs> they are just a walking tornado. <laughs> right. You know, eventually, like I said, this, this is a bit more extreme than we would actually take it. But sure. we might want to incapacitate this person <laughs> so that they can't destroy other people's things anymore. On even though they didn't mean to do it. 
Right. I think you have a good point because I, I, I always, when we approach isolatory or uh, incapacitory justice, I always want to say, mm, but it's all about reformation. But then again, that's not the point here. You're not trying – you might have that intention, but in the case for why you're locking them up right now, it isn't because you want to try to make them better. It's because you want shit to stop getting broken. <laughs> well, it's the same It's the same reason why we arrest people before they've been convicted of a crime. We're like, yes. things are happening. We're going to detain you now to whether stop you things. did it or not because we think that you know something else might happen if we don't. Exactly. So hmm? – I would say, though, uh, yeah, intentions don't matter in that case. Like, what matters in the in that case is things are happening, and we want them to at least pause for now. Right. So, it, it, whether you meant to, like, and, and that's a good example. Like, when, a, when the police show up to a, the scene of a crime, oftentimes, even innocent people will be detained temporarily. Not because they... While they figure out what's going on. Exactly. So, I would say... In that case, intentions are irrelevant uh, when that is the point. Because the moment you try to, you decide to keep them in custody, uh, when you actually begin to question whether or not you're going to keep them detained, at that point, you're looking at intentions when it ends. But even then, that's starting to creep into rehabilitatory territory where you're trying to decide. But you call their intentions into question at that point when you're trying to, to consider rehabilitative justice at that point even if it's not actually a crime you're you're if i've detained five people in the state of a crime when i begin looking at each person to determine whether i can let them go or not i begin assuming their attentions but the consequence of me keeping them in custody from that point forward is rehabilitatory because if they didn't mean to do it me keeping them in custody won't matter i hmm? Actually, no. You, you could keep someone in custody if you think they're going to do something just to stop it from happening again. Regardless of whether you are going to change their behavior. Um, and if you're not trying to be retributive. Yeah. No, I think that's... And yeah, you're not no, trying no, to, like, the yeah. incapacitation or detainment or, or, or whatever normally is always just some sort of practical measure. Like, someone might... Like, like you know, we haven't... Let's say that we haven't proven and convicted somebody of, of committing a crime, but we have reason to believe that if they did commit the crime, they might want to flee to escape their trial. Mm -hmm. So we will detain them to keep them from doing that. Right. So intentions do matter? Or, okay, it's actually not whether they matter or not. It's do we consider them or not? When we're trying to institute isolatory justice like right. that. Right. And we do, I think. Sort of. I, like, hmm. we're, not we're not trying to determine intentions. This is the step before that where we even begin to examine intentions. Right. So you do examine them regardless of what decision you make they're examined at least like in restitution in restitutive justice they're never examined right you don't even care in uh what was the other one i stated a second ago uh reformative yeah in reformative justice you always consider them uh or they're always right, because you can't reform somebody from doing something they didn't mean to do right so you would need intentions so you are considering them in retribution you always consider them and uh in deterrence, you never consider them. That's I think that's the division we're kind of trying to say. You don't really consider intentions for the sake of deterrence. You don't consider intentions for the sake of for uh, restitution. I feel like there's kind of a gradient forming where you have these two, uh, restitution and deterrence, where they're never considered. And then in the case of isolation, you do consider them. It, it depends on what type of isolation. If it's temporary, they're not considered. And if they are long-term and long-term isolation, they are considered. And so that's kind of where you kind of gray. That's a gray zone. And then the, the hard zone for intentions are rehabilitation and retribution. So I think that's kind of the how that's the spectrum of where you consider intentions falls on that axis. Uh, would that be fair to say? Yeah. Okay. So now that we've reached, we've reached that spectrum or continuum in 45 minutes. <laughs> um, 
So now that we've considered all that, my original statement about intentions is that I don't necessarily believe that intentions ever matter. That was my original claim, is that intentions, because you cannot know them on principle, should never be considered. You should look at objective facts. There is the caveat, though, that intentions are objective. We just can't know them yet. Right. If ever... Okay, intentions are knowable. Because they are objective. Because they are objective. So, and they matter. And they matter because they're objective. Right, yeah, well, yes, and the, like the, you know, the psychology of intentions matters. Right. And so, at that point, I feel like my original position of saying because they're unknowable, we should not ever care about them might be it's wrong because they they could they are knowable they aren't they aren't unknowable they are knowable so they do matter and so now that we've stepped from the principle where they a are knowable they can be used because they are objective and now that we've determined that they're objective and knowable acknowledging the shortcoming we go to the pragmatic realm where we know we can't know them we, we know that right now and practically we can't know them so we assume and that's where we we are now which is why you see them being disregarded in some cases and you don't always have to assume intentions either i i think that there are i think there are ways now to be pretty sure about somebody's intentions once again not you know noble beyond a doubt but you know, they're circumstantially, I think that safe inferences can be made. Sure. And I think that's going to be a good segue where we can go into maybe our second area, which is the bad faith arguments example. Right. Because that's kind of where we're leading to now. Because I really don't think there's much else to be said once I've adjusted my axiom about intentions um, for this sake of this discussion, um, except to say, okay. And then now the opposite in the binary, they are objective and they are noble. So they always matter. Um, <laughs> but that's also not true. It, 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 they only matter when they are a, uh, when we are assessing the individual themselves. I think that's the, the boundary we can look well, at. Right. Well, like they, they, they matter, but we might or might not take them into consideration for something like they, they may or may not matter in the scope of a particular decision that we're making. Right. And that, and I think that's uh, kind of the point. Because um, all a justice system is, is a way to make decisions about right. what A formal decision-making process. Yes. And in the two cases in which we consider intentions do not matter, um, which is deterrence and restitution, again, um, the real point of the decision being made there is not whether or not the person did something. It's whether or not damage was incurred and whether or not damage will be prevented. So you don't actually, you're really not even considering the individual. You're considering the outside, the, the effects of what the individual did and or the, the objective reality of the object that was damaged. And then also the much less hard, but the societal, um, the sociology of, a population you know you're not really you know they're the intent the individual is a means to an end in this case they're not the end whereas in retribution and um uh rehabilitation they are the object they are the end and you're trying to assign a means to it so i think that's a good way we can separate the two but they always matter so intentions do matter for sake of rehabilitating somebody and in the human case of wanting them to suffer <laughs> um thus is the case of retribution we've discussed before sure so moving into the bad faith arguments or just in general whenever you're engaging in a discussion so i think the example in which intentions are often brought in is when uh, personal gain is assessed that's one of the most popular vectors in which intentions are called to question and that is, does the individual you're arguing with hold the position because they would personally benefit from the position they hold? If by if, if from their position, if it were to be implemented, would they benefit? I can think of countless 
areas in which this is called in uh, both historically and uh, in the modern day, you know, um, historically, for example, um, uh, one we could, we could cite is, uh, often has to do with power dynamics and societies. Um, I would cite something like, uh, Jim Crow laws, for example, and historically, um, if you were a supporter of Jim Crow laws, it is a fair question to question your intentions because would the people who hold that position, if they were white would benefit because now their vote holds more power being it more scarce in the population. So you could apply that intention based on the individual who would benefit. Whereas if the person wouldn't benefit, it also still matters because you actually somewhat rein, we, we will say it reinforces someone's argument if they were to actually suffer from the consequence of their policy. But it, either way, the intentions matter. They're being called into question in that case. Um, what I would like to point out, however, is I don't think it always, it, it, I think the intentions, for, I think when you're trying to assess why someone is arguing for something, it's a fair question, but it shouldn't disregard the argument itself. I think arguments... Just because somebody is going to benefit from some, you know, determination, conclusion from uh, the argument about the issue doesn't really say anything about the merits of their argument. Exactly. Um, because an argument, I think we, we've always hold held the conviction that arguments should be examined and dealt with in, in, in a vacuum. Like the argument itself should always be addressed itself. In fact, anytime you address the individual giving the argument, it's an ad hominem. Even if you don't mean to damage the reputation of the person, when you begin call, you debate the argument, not your interlocutor. Right. I think, I think the only time when, well, I don't know if that's necessarily always true. Okay. It's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have to be an ad hominem. What you can be doing if you want to, um, if you want to raise the question of someone's motivations behind an argument, um, normally you would not do this in a formal debate, but if you were having a personal conversation with somebody, you might do this to try to get them to contemplate their own biases. Yes. Um, so it, it can be, it can be a useful and uh, I think fair strategy to get someone to reconsider their position, um, it you know by calling into question their incentives. Um, that it doesn't necessarily mean that their their argument is invalid about something. Um, to that they like the fact that they benefit from from a particular conclusion doesn't say anything about the merits of their argument. Right. But I don't think that it's necessarily always bad to bring up somebody's incentives that way sure i think the difference in that you said it has to do with who you're actually talking to or who you're presenting your argument to um in the case of a formal debate you're actually presenting your argument to the third party that's what you're doing you're you're not so much trying to convince your interlocutor necessarily whereas in a right. formal debate yeah. what, what's invalid is saying listen audience my opponent here is a bad person yes and you shouldn't believe anything that he has to say or take his argument seriously. Right. But when you're in a personal discussion, you are actually trying to convince the interlocutor of something. And in that case, it is a fair game. Because um, you can make, you know, I, th I think it's that that's where we're, we're really getting at. Because in if you're trying to convince the interlocutor that they are bad, a they are a bad person for believing that, I mean, good luck. Most people aren't going to concede that point at all so yeah you know what you're right i'm a bad person like yeah <laughs> that's not gonna happen um and i would say that most of the time when a bad faith when bad faith is being called in and the intentions of the individual are being called in at that point a lot of the time i see that as a movement of weakness for the person who's calling in the bad faith and as they're using it as a crutch for their argument but that's another thing to be stated though the bad faith of your interlocutor has nothing to do with the solid, you know, the, how solid your argument is. And however, that is kind of how it's treated due to the competitive nature we, we view debates as. Um, 
for example, if you and I were having an open debate with an audience about ideas, people will be more likely to accept your idea if you're able to convince them that I'm motivated poorly. So, but that has, but that's non sequitur. Like we're trying to argue back and forth about whether uh, smoking tobacco causes cancer. And, I'm and you by, work for a tobacco company, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I benefit from if if my case was true and that it isn't bad for you. People are going to believe it's it is bad for you because I stand to benefit, right? When you say it straight like that, it actually makes no sense, right? It's a non sequitur, but it is. Yeah, I think I think we can highlight something as to why this works, and that is people assume. I think there's an underlying assumption that. Good people make good arguments, whereas bad people make bad arguments. It's it's so often, the it's hard to separate. Or it's the assumption that the idea is what makes the individual, and so if there's a bad individual, they have bad ideas, and so that I think that's where we're. It's the inability, or it's the difficulty of human beings to separate an argument from its from the arguer, you know, and so. You can actually, and because of that difficulty and separation, it's sometimes a lot easier to call in the individual as opposed to the argument because the argument stands for itself. Like any argument really doesn't need an individual to deliver it. Like it, the individual delivering it is really irrelevant. You know, if you think of the argument as this ethereal metaphysical thing, it stands by itself. You have to address it directly. You know, even in moments of quiet contemplation with yourself and there's no one else, you cannot attack someone else for that argument. It's going to stand by itself. But the circumstances on what you're willing to do or how willing, and this actually does tie really well back into our open-mindedness discussion last time, is your willingness to be open-minded about the idea when it's being given by an individual is almost always tied to the character of the individual. And so when you call into question the the motivations or intentions of the, your interlocutor in front of an audience, what you're actually trying to do by doing that or what the effect you're going to have is affect the open-mindedness. What you're trying to do inadvertently maybe is you're trying to affect the audience's willingness to even entertain the argument of the other person. And that's in my opinion, why it's wrong is that it's not so much what you're doing to the person across from you. That's wrong too. Don't be wrong. Or it could be if you're in bad faith trying to do that, but taking the intentions out of that, the effect you're having on the audience is you're trying to close their minds to accepting a different argument. And that is what's wrong with that. I think. Right. Because, because really what you're doing is you're making an assertion to the audience. Nobody could support this position unless they were whatever. Exactly. And so, by doing that, you're essentially telling the audience you're a bad person if, if you, you think this. Yep. Or and sometimes even if you consider this, and that's what we talked about last week with our ex, our spectrum on closed-mindedness versus open-mindedness. You're trying to essentially no real Scotsman people into that position almost right. um, by creating a false dichotomy. There's another fallacy. You're you're creating almost a false continuum of you know, what is considered reasonable or good. And so uh, that's what's really wrong with that is that you're actually trying to affect the audience. You're, you're negatively influencing the audience on when on the question of whether or not they're open or closed-minded by even bringing into question your interlocutor. Right. And that's what's wrong with that. And that's why, and you can't do that if it's just the two of you. You know, but then again, maybe we're reading too much into the intentions of the person who would be making the bad face argument. That's always open to question too, because that's really what we're doing. But I would say it doesn't matter if that's what you're intending. I, to I don't. Or not. I don't think it real. Yeah, if you're if you're intending to to sway the audience that way, then you are being dishonest. Yes, but even if you don't mean to do it, and that's the effect that you have on these other people, it's still wrong. And at that point, that's why. It, the intention of whether you're doing it or not might change. It's it's a, it's a separate question, and we could assign blame for you for two things at that point. Being a well, being a you're you're having a negative effect on these people. That's objective. But for the same reason, we can't assign it. You know, it, it's unknowable for us right now. So, it, but it is objective. So you're having an objectively negative impact on other people, 
A. That's that's separate. Mm-hmm. And for that, your intentions are irrelevant. But the second half of it, when we do call on your and question your intentions, that's a different issue of dishonesty. And that's separate. So I think that's a good place where we can uh, – I think that's, that, that horse has been well well beaten okay. at that point. So um, I don't think we have another example to really drill down on. Um, let's see. So I have a lot to think about now because a lot of the time I, I'd, I'd say intentions are irrelevant. And we could even probably go even further to say, yes, we could determine your intentions, but uh, – can you do you have any control over those intentions as well? There's there's a you can keep there's going. There's a whole different meta layer there. Yep. There's another meta layer of what we had talked about of can you choose to believe what you believe, and we had decided no because you can't actually affect how you think. You can't choose what to think. For the same reason, an intention is a thought. You can't choose to have those intentions. Yep. So there's another layer down mm-hmm. on that. If you, you know, homework assignment. <laughs> Take the results of this discussion and apply them in the context of the same of that of that discussion and see how that where that ends ends up with you. But that I feel like is a whole other kettle of fish that will take quite a time to sift through. So uh, that being said, I think that's uh, where I kind of want to leave it for the episode anyway. I think so. yeah, I agree. All right. Well, in that case, philosophers, philosophers. <laughs>